take the risk. Now's the time to take risk and try something different because you don't innovate in spaces of it's safe and it is certain and we know this is something that you know is going to work because we've done all of our research and all of that stuff. I think people are well positioned to try new and different things without the pushback that would normally happen. And that's how you discover something that you may have never thought of before. So instead of looking at it as, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? How about you lean in and kind of focus on why not give this a try? It may not work, but we don't know unless we give it a try. I'm Jeff Cobb. I'm Salisa Steele. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 256 of the Leading Learning Podcast, which features a conversation with Sean Boynes. This is the sixth episode in a seven-part series on the learning business in disruptive times. Sean Boynes is the executive director of the American Association for Anatomy, based in the Washington, D.C. metro area, and one of the hosts of the Text to Table podcast, focused on conversations about race and leadership. Salisa spoke with Sean in September 2020. The American Association for Anatomy is one of the oldest scientific organizations in this country. It's 132 years old, so been around for a very long time. And the primary focus of the organization is on elevating the discipline of anatomy as a science. And members of the association as I like to say, prepare future doctors and dentists for clinical practice. So they teach in medical and dental schools, and they primarily focus on anatomy, whether it's gross anatomy or the many other disciplines that are related to anatomy, such as histology or cell biology and that sort of thing. And so tell us a little bit, too, about what it means to be executive director there. What do you what do you do? You know, it's interesting because even though I'm not from the scientific discipline and and certainly I haven't gone to medical school or dental school, I feel that staff's role is to support the work of the members. And in a very small way, we are contributing to preparing future doctors and dentists. Even though we don't have that direct connection, the work that we do supports members so that they can be their best and how they connect with students. So you and I are talking as part of a podcast series that we're doing on the learning business in a time of disruption. And so when you think about what we're living through, what we're working through, what comes to mind? What are the kinds of disruption that you're experiencing? You know, it's interesting, and I'll actually take it back a step because the whole virtual or online learning area. We've been talking about this for a long time. This isn't new. And and from the nonprofit association space, you know, some have made adequate investments to take content that would normally be presented face-to-face live in person to the online environment. But I'm not sure that the overall association community has really made big enough strides. Now we're being forced to do so. And the shift was quick and drastic. For for AAA, as we refer to the organization, the members were in the same situation as many other educators. So they had to quickly move from teaching, you know, 
large lecture halls of students, you know, 300 students in some instances, to the online environment. And while some would say, well, yeah, I mean, they're educators, so they should be able to do that, not so much. And then the other part of that is, you know, a critical element of medical education and dental school education is around, you know, using cadavers as a way to teach students. So how do you do that in an online environment? You you can't replace that. Certainly there's technology out there that I would say aids in their ability to teach gross anatomy and working with cadavers, but there's nothing like having a cadaver to work on. People gift their bodies to science for that purpose. But if you're not in the cadaver lab, how are you teaching students? So that was a very difficult thing for them to pivot to. And then you're also dealing with the mental health of students because it's already stressful being in medical and dental school. And now, you know, depending on if they're first year, second year, third year, you know, how do you keep them focused enough that they continue their studies? And and it was a lot. So the members of the association, it was sort of like drinking from a fire hose nonstop. Well, so I think you make some excellent points about the fact that this really isn't new, right? That there's been so much of a, a, a need and a desire to move online even prior to the pandemic. And now it's just sort of forced the hand for some organizations, some who are perhaps better positioned than others. And then I love the point about the fact that there are things that it can be difficult to translate online. And so that, that very, that literally the hands-on training that can be difficult to to offer effectively online. Um, so in terms of, you know, kind of that pivot and, and trying to deal with moving um, your education online, you know, that's sort of, I guess, one type of the disruption that's coming from the pandemic. I mean, are there other types of, of disruption that you're experiencing and dealing with um, personally or as an org- organization at this moment in time, other types of disruption? I think as an organization, the challenge is, you know, how do you support members that, are not focused on the association like they normally would be. You know, you you have volunteers and volunteers mm-hmm. tend to be the engine that drives the work of many organizations and because they are entrenched in, you know, just trying to teach and then also they have families and taking mm-hmm. care of their families. The association is not top of mind. So even though we're doing our best to try to be the resource for them and, and support them as much as we possibly can, they're not always thinking of us, you know, first thing in the morning when they wake up, oh, yeah, let me see what AAA is offering today. So we're competing with the reality that everyone is struggling with in this pandemic and just trying to make sure that we remain a resource for them whenever they need us. I tend to share lots of resources. I curate content around leadership just to draw attention to things that most leaders and execs should be doing, whether it's, you know, you're trying to improve your leadership style or you're trying to tweak your leadership style. I think we have to continually learn and grow. And just because you become the exec or CEO doesn't mean that you're done, that you've arrived. That's just one stop along the way. And we should continue to want to grow and be better for ourselves and for the teams that we serve. And before you were an executive director, I mean, you have uh, you came up through um, the learning ranks, right? You were a director I of did. professional development or 
I did from from my very first association job straight out of college, pretty much. So my entire career has been in the association community for 25 years. And I've worked for this is my sixth association. So I've worked with scientists, of course, I've worked with nurses, I've worked with lawyers, you know, healthcare professionals. So that I think helps me kind of really appreciate the value that associations bring to the world. But my chosen, I would say, stovepipe when I entered the association space was in the education professional development space. I did not aspire to be an executive director or CEO. I wanted to continue providing um, education and resources to professionals of any discipline and help them be better at what they at what they did, whether you know it's lawyers needing continuing legal education credit hours and that sort of thing. So the education and professional development space is near and dear to my heart. And I think it actually served me well in becoming executive director because, you know, you have to focus on working with a different group of people for almost every, you know, meeting or online learning experience. And you also have to work across the organization to bring teams together, whether it's around marketing, whether or not it's around meetings, logistics, whether or not it's the board of directors and trying to engage them in the organization. And then there's also the money part. You know, there's the, the business model around education. So all of that served me well when it was time for me to step into the role of executive director. So, yeah, education rocks. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. And I always love it when you have a leader who truly appreciates the importance of that line of business and what it can mean in terms of the impact for the organization, but also the impact on the industry or field or profession that you're serving and that ability to move the needle. Absolutely. And it's, you know, one of the things that I, I like to say is, you know, what's the stickiness factor for any organization? What, what, keeps people. And in many instances, when you look at membership, you know, surveys, needs assessments, and that sort of thing, you know, typically education, professional development content tends to be in the top three, you know, so it's something that organizations have to continue investing in organizations have to appreciate the value that that brings to the members that they serve, and not lose sight of the fact that yeah, things changed. But that doesn't mean that it's dead, you just have to kind of look at it differently. So what do you see as the threats um, of these current disruptive times? And I'm thinking in particular for organizations that are in the learning business, you know, so when you think about what you're dealing with now, what worries you most? I think for many organizations, you know, especially in the association space, we rely on meetings and that's what brings people together. And there's energy around that. And there's also, let's be honest, the money Mm. that most organizations rely on from meetings. Meetings tend to drive significant revenue for many organizations. And, you know, for, for AAA, we are in, I would say a good place right now, because that's not to say that we won't have our own challenges, but we don't rely on meetings revenue to sustain the organization. We rely on revenue from our journals. You know, that's kind of our bread and butter. But for those organizations that rely on meetings revenue, they are, I mean, they're challenged with trying to figure out how do we fill that gap? How do we make up that revenue? And I think for this year, there wasn't enough time to figure that out, you know, for those groups that had to cancel meetings. And I think 
almost all groups had to cancel big meetings, you know, big annual meetings and trade shows and that sort of thing. So I think that the good part of that is it's forcing organizations to take a step back and figure out their business models and what do they need to do differently in order to survive in uncertainty because we don't know what the next few years are going to bring and we don't know if we'll be able to convene face-to-face anytime soon. So certainly online is one element of that, but that may mean letting go of some things that the organization shouldn't be doing anyway. And that's always hard because, you know, people hold on to programs and services and get emotionally connected. But sometimes you just have to sunset things. And these are the types of questions that organizations are grappling with and they have to figure out because tomorrow is not going to be the same. And, you know, looking a year down the line, it's just so much that's unknown and and you're kind of throwing darts in the dark because you don't know. So, you know, unless organizations are willing to tackle those tough questions, I don't think that some will survive. So what goes on today that's exciting to you? You know, where are you finding hope or energy or enthusiasm despite the disruption? I think people are really figuring out what's important to them. And for many of us, you know, we have routines. So we, you know, get up and we would commute to work in many instances and we would just go through the day. And I think people now have time to figure out what's important to them. The other part of that is, you know, this this whole online piece, I know there are some organizations that struggled with a remote workforce, whether it was, do you have a telework policy, you know, allowing staff to work from home a day a week, a couple of days a week, or how does that work? Well, now everyone, if they are fortunate, you know, they, they should have systems in place that allow staff to work from home. And I think the expectation will be going forward that staff have the flexibility to contribute to the organization as, as, you know, a staffer, in a remote environment, you don't have to be in an office. You don't have to have long commutes. And I think, you know, that's something, especially in the D.C. metro area, you know, traffic is terrible, you know, under normal circumstances. Well, if you remove that from the equation, will you have happier employees? Will you have employees that are a little more productive? So that's one of the things that I'm actually excited about, because I think the way we work has been turned upside down, whether groups wanted to embrace it or not. And I know that some organizations were a little more forward thinking than others, But for those that didn't kind of make that happen, now they're running to catch up. But hopefully they're seeing that, you know, managing remotely, it's it's different. But, you know, people are able to still get stuff done. And the question of, you know, what are people doing and kind of the big brother element, I think that should not even be part of the consideration anymore. What words of advice, of caution, of uh, courage do you have for those in the learning business about how to do right and really thrive in this current moment? Take the risk. Now's the time to take risk and try something different because you don't innovate in spaces of it's safe and it is certain and we know this is something that you know, is going to work because we've done all of our research and all of that stuff. I think people are well positioned 
to try new and different things without the pushback that would normally happen. And that's how you discover something that you may have never thought of before. So instead of looking at it as, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? How about you lean in and kind of focus on why not give this a try? It may not work, but we don't know unless we give it a try. And I think it also is forcing a lot of learning professionals to assess their skill sets because, you know, we tend to focus on what we know and what we're good at. But I think now it's becoming more about, are you a generalist in this space? You know, being the person who was responsible for, you know, live face-to-face training or courses. Okay, that's great. However, in this new environment and going forward, I think the expectation will be that people will have an opportunity to consume their education and their learning and training online when they want it, how they want it. And we have to be well positioned to seize that opportunity. Are there risks that you find yourself taking as a leader? You you suggested people should embrace this, lean into this, take the risk. Are there uh, areas, any examples that you care to share from what you're trying? Yeah, from my perspective with my executive director hat on, I will say trying to make sure that the governing body, the the board of directors stays focused enough and appreciates that they still have to govern the organization. And while, you know, most groups have face-to-face board meetings, you know, several times a year, that's out the window now. And for, for me, I had not convened the board virtually to have, you know, its meeting to conduct its business and that sort of thing. And it's a different animal, you know, trying to to do it that way. You for for me, I did not want to convene the board and have them on some sort of virtual platform for eight hours, you know, a, a full day board meeting like that's just not ideal. You know, people can't focus that long. However, you still have to conduct the business of the association. So that's been a challenge for me. But you know, I don't have a choice. So we're kind of pushing through and we're doing the best we can do and trying to break down chunks of time where the board can convene to take action and uh, embrace their fiduciary responsibility. So tell us about the text to table podcast. What is it and what prompted you to start it? Text to Table actually has has turned into uh, a work of love for me and my my co-hosts, Dante Shannon, Michelle Mills-Clement, and Irving Washington. And it actually was born out of kind of what's happening in the world right now, and, and especially how the Black community is being impacted by the racial tensions and the social justice kind of movement that is happening right now. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we decided to pull the curtain back and and let people into the conversations that black people are having in this moment. And it's primarily for white people. And we wanted to make sure that we were as transparent and honest as we possibly could be. And we we kind of didn't go into it with a plan. We just thought, okay, we'll do this and we'll see what happens. And after that first episode, we realized that there was an overwhelming positive response to the episode, and we decided, okay, we got to keep this going. And I think it speaks to a couple of things. It speaks to the need, you know, the timing is is right, 
And then also there's a gap because no one else was really talking about these things in a way, you know, I think they were happening in a vacuum, you know, black people were talking about stuff and maybe white people were talking about stuff, but no one kind of put it front and center. So we took a risk in that sense. And we used a platform that everyone is now used to in terms of kind of bringing content to the masses. And that was the online platform. And we've continued to do that. And now we're building out a community of people that are interested in talking about race as it relates to leadership and the tough things that we have to deal with. So we're going to offer resources and give people an opportunity to do the work themselves. We're not trying to provide a roadmap or, you know, provide the silver bullet solution for people to figure out how to be anti-racist. However, we're providing people with the resources that they can put together their own toolbox and hopefully be better advocates for black people because we need that right now. I've listened to the first two episodes and really enjoyed it and found it very useful. And I especially appreciated that you mentioned an on being podcast episode. I've long time been a long time listener of Krista Tippett and on being. And uh, I like that episode very much that you mentioned with Resma and, uh, and Robin. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. Exactly. Robin um, D'Angelo. Yeah. So, you know, when you think about, you know, the times of disruption and when we were talking earlier, um, kind of focused on the need to shift to online that kind of came out of the coronavirus pandemic. And then you also have this moment of disruption, kind of a new sort of uh, renewed disruption around the, the systemic racism. Are you seeing these different, how do you see these different types of disruption, you know, the systemic racism, the pandemic, how do you see them overlapping if you do? Oh, absolutely. I think there's a convergence that's happening. And, you know, we we can't ignore one over the other. We have to deal with them both. And what I mean by that is, you know, when the George Floyd, that, that seemed to be kind of the the flashpoint for all of these discussions. And it's it's not new. It's been around for a while. But I think because of the pandemic and the fact that people are at home, it was a little more top of mind for people. And, and people, you know, had the time to pay closer attention to what was happening and the fact that it was recorded and the fact that it was horrible and, and people actually saw it and, you know, were forced to confront their role, whether they've experienced it personally as a person of color, discrimination and racism, or if, you know, white people kind of sat silent and didn't speak up before. The other part of that is organizations were actually forced to address social justice issues that they probably wouldn't have addressed previously. You know, organizations, the for-profit and the nonprofit communities, some issued statements saying that they were against racism. And those statements, okay, they're fine, but what it did, it also put some in the hot seat because the question then became, okay, yeah, these are words and it sounds great, but look at the internal makeup of the organization. Look at your senior team. Do you have any black people on your senior team or people of color for that matter? Are you committed to diversity beyond the words? Like, do you have any programs in place? Do you have a strategic plan that includes diversity, equity, and inclusion in it? And I think that's where organizations are struggling still because most groups tend to not 
dip their toe in the social justice water because, you know, it's just something that if it's not mission related or focused, well, why would we do that? But now they were forced to deal with it. And I think, you know, employees and the workforce is demanding that these organizations speak up and support them in some capacity. This is probably a big question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. But what is it like to be a black executive director at this moment in time? It's hard. And not that it's not hard any other time, but I think in in my role, I remember, you know, having to discuss all of this with my team. It was, you know, the weekend after the unrest around George Floyd's murder. And I convened a meeting with my team and we talked about it. And I told them, look, I'm not okay. I'm not in a good place. I also sent a similar message to the board of directors of the association, letting them know that I was struggling. So I had to be vulnerable in that moment. At the same time, I recognized that I was hired to lead the organization. And while I needed to make sure that I took care of myself emotionally, mentally, and and otherwise, I also had a job to do. So it was hard to navigate. And that's where my network came into play in the whole, you know, the text to table idea, you know, was born out of that. And I have a group of trusted colleagues that I rely on for the support because we all experience similar things as black executive directors and CEOs of organizations. So for me, it it really forced me to be vulnerable in moments where I normally wouldn't be. I tend to compartmentalize aspects of my life because that's how I've had to navigate professionally. And in this instance, that wasn't working. So I had to pull the curtain back on myself and just kind of reveal the fact that I was struggling, that I was hurting, and it was not easy for me. And now what I've, I've focused on is how do I use my voice to amplify the challenges that Black people are facing in the workplace and speaking truth to all of the many different obstacles that I've faced along my career. And I've, I've built my career and my reputation by being true to myself. However, I wanted to make sure that now I was using my my megaphone moment to bring attention to the issues that other Black professionals are struggling with as well. What do you wish for or from other Black leaders at this moment? And what do you wish for or from non-Black leaders? For Black leaders, I want us to step up and, and speak our truth. As difficult as that may be, we can't address and move the needle at all if if we're not willing to stand in our truth. And that's not an easy thing, but we have to do it and recognize that the support is there. It's just reaching out and asking for it. And I think for non-Black leaders, it's do something. There, there has to be action. Listen to your Black employees, listen to your Black colleagues, and try to figure out what your role can be or should be in addressing this massive issue that we have in this country related to race. And no one is calling anybody out or, or you know, trying to put someone in the hot seat. I think people need to be self-reflective and figure out where they could have done something and they didn't. And then be honest and learn from it. What are you committing to going forward? What are you willing to do to help address 
this issue because black people can't do it alone. We need our allies and we need those to stand front and center with us and in some instances shield us from the nonsense that continues to come from racists in this country. And that is not easy. I get it. However, we can't get to a better place if it's just one group leading over another. We've got to come together and make it happen. I want to give you the chance. Is there anything that you were hoping that we might get into that we didn't get into? Anything else you'd like to add or say? I think it's, I've really appreciated all of your, your comments and the insights and examples that you shared. But again, just want to leave it open if there's something else that you wanted to, to have a chance to say. Yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll, you know, make this comment because I think it's important. You know, so many are looking forward to, you know, getting back to normal. And, and I don't think that that's what we're going back to. We're going back to something that will be different. And what I mean by that is you have to acknowledge that some of these changes were good changes. You know, I already talked about, you know, the remote workforce and giving staff the opportunity to telework because it is something that if you're, if you're being mindful of the workforce and it's becoming increasingly more competitive to find good talent, You've got to change the culture of the organization and make sure that you have policies in place to embrace telework and, and remote workers. It's just, it's just something that it's not going to swing back to, you know, having everybody in the office every day and, and, and that sort of thing. And then the other part of it is, you know, like I said before, continue to take risk. Now's the time to do it and figure out what that one thing is that may help reposition the organization to better serve. It may be a different audience, not the same audience, but a different audience. Sean Boynes is the executive director of the American Association for Anatomy. Learn more about AAA at anatomy.org, where you'll find information about who they are, what they do, who they serve, and the discipline of anatomy in general. Sean is also one of the four co-hosts of the Text to Table podcast, which focuses on conversations about race and leadership. Find Sean and connect with him on LinkedIn and Twitter. You can find links to the AAA website, Sean on LinkedIn and Twitter, and the Text to Table podcast in our show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 256 along with a transcript and other resources related to my conversation with Sean. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 256, you'll also see options for subscribing to the podcast. To make sure you don't miss the remaining episodes in this series, we encourage you to subscribe. And subscribing also helps us to get some data on the impact of the podcast. We'd be grateful if you would take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Jeff and I personally appreciate it, and reviews and ratings help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Go to leadinglearning.com slash apple to leave a review and rating. Lastly, please spread the word about leading learning. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 256, there are links to find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. Podcast.